All right, well, my name's Tyler Hardy. If I've not met you, um, then, uh, like I said last week, that means you probably haven't met me either. So um, uh, if you're a college student, just pop your hand up real quick. If you're a college student here, look at that. So you thought you were alone, and then you walked in, and I just want to make a quick note on college students. Um, uh, I'm class of 05, a whoop, old, man, a old, Wow. Guys, I'll need some push-ups afterwards. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, um, we live in Bryan College Station. We live in this town with Blinn and A&M. And I don't know the exact numbers, but there's probably close to 80,000 or so college-age people in our cities. And uh, I tell people often that, you know, if you don't like hanging out with college students, you need to move because you're in the wrong town. Uh, and, but I just want you to know that we are delighted that you're here. Uh, we started this church with predominantly college students uh, back in 2009, and we started with life groups, meeting in our house, and our first college life group grew from three to five to 10 to 70, and eventually we ran out of room, so we multiplied it, and it's kind of gone on from there. So that's really the foundations of our church, and over the years, God's been gracious to pull in families and, and those that have kids in college or beyond and, and young adults and singles. And so we're now mixing it up to represent all the different age, uh, age demographics in our city. But we're glad you're here. And um, if you haven't connected with our college team, we'd love if you to do that after the service. Uh, we put a big emphasis on college ministry uh, because we believe that if we can help partner with you, and presenting Jesus and discipleship and helping to lay that foundation for your life now, that'll serve you the rest of your days. But usually the way it goes, in case you're not aware, is how people graduate their senior year is typically the path they stay on. So whatever their belief system is, whatever their focus is, whatever their lifestyle, whatever their uh, convictions are by the time they graduate from college, usually it's very difficult for them to shift. It's not that you can't, but it just makes it a whole lot harder. So our desire is to say, hey, what would it look like if we show people really who Jesus is? What does it really mean to be a Christian? What does it really mean to live a life honoring to God all the days of their life? And then maybe they'll go into marriage and parenting and, and work and leading their own business and being a citizen of this country and everything else. And all of the rights you have, maybe go with it with the lens of Jesus and with the perspective of the kingdom versus just a worldly scope. So again, if you're not a college student, I would urge you to get to know the college students uh, because we're also really trying to make an effort to mix in the different generations here at Antioch. And so we'd love for you to get to know people that are not in college because if you're in college, it's all you see every day. So there you go. So if you're not in college, you know who you are. Just make yourself known. All right. Thank you, Jesus. Well, we are in week two of a series called Seek First. Seek first, and that comes from Matthew 6, It says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, I want you to be clear about something. It's not just, but keep it back up there, but seek first the kingdom of God. It's seek first the kingdom of God and What? and his righteousness. It's both and, right? Oftentimes we talk about the kingdom. There's a lot of kingdom speak, and it's like, oh man, I wanna live in the kingdom. I'm all about the kingdom, right? And people sometimes use these jargons like, man, I'm not really about the church, but I'm about the kingdom. 
You know what I'm saying? Or they'd be like, dude, I'm into like kingdom culture, but not church culture. And I'm like, okay, hold on a second. Did you know that Christ is the head of the church? Did you know that kingdom is only where the king is? It's the same person. Woo! Uh-oh. Get off some of those podcasts. Jesus, the founder of the church, the head of the church, the church is what he's coming back for, by the way, his bride. He is all about the kingdom and all about the church, not the organization, the people of God. Do you understand me? So just to be clear, for everybody in the room, we are pro-kingdom and we are pro-church because Jesus is pro-kingdom and pro-church. It's like saying, I'm all about the grace of God, but I'm not that uh, concerned with the, with, with the truth of God. And the other side is saying, man, I'm all about truth, man, but grace, come on, right? It's both in. You cannot represent Christ. You cannot follow Christ just in grace or just in truth. It is both in, right? He even said himself, I'm looking for true worshipers, right? True worshipers, according to Jesus Christ himself, worship in spirit and in truth, not just one without the other. So if you find yourself worshiping God only in one camp, I would argue Jesus would come to you and say, hey man, this isn't, this isn't true worship. This is 50%. You're halfway there. But let's include the other part. Amen? All right. So we're talking about seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And his righteousness. What you're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is Jesus reiterates these themes over and over, talking about the kingdom of God and the lifestyle of the kingdom and how you need to have a mindset about what are the beliefs associated with the kingdom. But with that, he's associating the righteousness, the holiness of what does it look like to live a life that is honoring to God. So let's kick it off here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, most of us have heard this passage or a reference to it before, right? But hopefully today I'll shed some light on maybe a little deeper meaning with it. Now, a couple of basics, right? Salt at the time was very expensive. It was very valuable. It was hard to come by. In fact, a thousand years ago, the Egyptians salted fish coming out of the River Nile. The Roman soldiers, they discovered, were actually dying on the field of battle and on their marches to different territories for a main reason, because of a lack of salt in their diet. So they'd be giving them salt cubes, right? And so they recognized the value of salt. Now, when we think of salt, um, don't think of the table salt you get today initially at the store that's all bleached and nice and white. Um, think of colored salt, right? Salt that is not processed. And those colors are associated with the minerals um, with, with, uh, associated with the minerals from where the salt comes from, right? So salt is oftentimes mined. And so it's not bleached with the chemicals. And so therefore the minerals are displaying are displayed in the color salt. A couple other things about salt would be that some words that we get from salt, you may or may not know this, but the word salary, we all want that, right? Salary, right? The Roman soldiers would work for 
salt. That's the expression, you're worth your salt, would go with the Roman soldiers, right? Another word we get from that is salad, but you didn't know that one, huh? Salted vegetables. Now, it's interesting, we usually don't salt the salad, but that's where it came from. Don't blame me. The third one, salvation, right? right? Salvation comes from God's covenant with us. Now, a couple of things is that salt at the time, as I mentioned with the Egyptians, the Romans, but back about 2,000 years ago, people did use it for enhancing flavor, right? When you added food to salt, salt does, and still today, does release the flavor and the aroma in foods breaking down the cell walls in that particular food. So put it this way. When we think of salt, we say, hey, let's just add some salt on it, right? What the salt's actually doing is actually activating the food, the different um, uh, 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 structures in that food, and what it's doing is it's breaking it down so that you are getting the aroma and the flavors of that food. So that's why salt actually is more of an enhancer than just a flavorer. It's pulling out the flavors and the food. You didn't know that, did you? See? You came to church to learn. Here we go. So when you salt something, you're trying to actually extract those flavors out of that food. Now, I want to make a statement here that uh, I'll back it up with a brief article. Um, I do not believe that Jesus is referencing table salt when he's sharing in this message in Matthew 5. Now, let me back that up here. I came across an article. Um, There was a man named Eugene Dietrich, okay? He was the former head of the soils department at West Virginia University. And he put together an article called Salt Soil Savior, right? And he penned it off of Matthew 5.13. I just want to read you a few excerpts from it. These salts were unlike the modern table salt, sodium chloride. In our kitchens, the salts in Jesus' day were mixtures of chlorides of sodium, magnesium, and potassium with very small amounts of calcium sulfate, known as gypsum, right? Now, disintegrated salt loses a small amount of gypsum, which changes its saltiness. So when Jesus talks to his followers about losing their saltiness, he was talking about losing their fertilizing properties, their ability to bring about life and growth. Now, let me pause real quick. I just said fertilizer. Some of you guys are like, whoa, what? I do not want to be the fertilizer of the earth, right? <laughs> now, let me show you something, though. If you got your Bibles, you can go to Luke, <clears throat> Matthew, Mark, Luke, uh, chapter 14, I believe. All right, Luke 14, verse 34. Now, this is another phrasing of what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5. Luke recounts something similar. He says, In verse 34, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. Whoa, it is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this is serious. When Jesus says, he who has ears to let him hear, he's saying, listen up, okay? So Luke's referencing the manure pile, okay, which is kind of gross, but let's just just keep going. A 19th century agricultural reference volume notes that salt is applicable in all cases in which fermented dung cannot be carted at once to land. Covering the heap with salt will be found a cheap and effective means of checking fermentation. Salt keeps dung hills from rotting and and becoming useless as fertilizer. 
while enhancing the fertilizing properties of dung. Now, when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, another way to maybe frame it is this. You are like the salt for the soil, a stimulus for growth. If you become like the savorless salt, no longer good for anything, how will the gospel of the kingdom be preached throughout the whole world? You see, the followers of Jesus are sent on a mission to stimulate growth in the parts of the world that are barren and to be mixed into the manure piles of the world so that God can use the fertilizer to bring new virtuous life. The call to salty is the call to move toward the broken so they may meet God and be set free to become who God wants them to be. You see, when you talk about salt, this call from Jesus, this statement here, is more about us being salty to the world around us, by us being something that can help enhance the flavors, draw out the aroma, something that can actually go into the dark places, to the icky places where people are not willing to go, and to yet say, no, there is something I can stimulate growth in life where there is none. Because you see that there is a lifelessness, there is a death, right? There's a spiritual lifelessness to people. But when they meet Jesus, when they meet him, and there's life there, and there's opportunity. So he's saying, go be salty so that people are attracted to it, so that, so that when you show up, and just a little bit is mixing. Actually, I was reading that in your own little vegetable and fruit gardens, okay? If you guys do those little gardens in your backyard, which half the times are successful for us, half the times they totally fail, okay? But I read this, and I was like, oh my gosh, that's a missing ingredient. If you put a little bit of salt in your garden, your vegetables and fruits and flowers take off. Not too much, but just a little bit. A little bit of salt literally will have some flavor. I was reading another article. In the Philippines, they did a study in the 90s about coconut farmers. They got a lot of coconuts there, okay? And what they did is they looked at farmers and said, okay, these that actually salt the soil with their coconut trees, with those trees, versus those that don't. And there was a clear across the board, they produced 25% more coconuts than their rivals just with a little bit of salt. Salt literally is an agent of change. That's right. Do you see that? Like, just a little bit of salt goes a long way. You've heard that expression, right? Like when you're a kid and you're like, <laughs> mom's like, just a little bit of salt goes a long way, right? <clears throat> That's what my mom said at least. Because listen, my grandpa salted a cereal, okay? So like, <laughs> I've come a long way. And man, hey, listen, he's 90 years old, still alive, just saying. <clears throat> A little bit of salt goes a long way, y'all. Okay, so the saltiness, right? That's where we're going. We're going for to be a salty people. But it's not a saltiness for yourself. Did you see that? It's a saltiness for others. Let's continue on. He says in verse 14, we're gonna shift gears from salt now to light, but a similar illustration. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the meaning of light, if you think about it biblically, light tends to always involve the removal of darkness. Okay? Genesis chapter one, verse three and four. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, 
and God separated the light from the darkness. Did you catch that? God said the light was good, not the darkness. He created light and then he separated them. This is the very first day of creation recorded in Genesis 1. The very first thing God did in the formless place, he said, let there be light. Because darkness already existed. He brought the light. And the light was good. In the Bible, darkness is equated with the wicked, judgment, death, etc. Yet light is often used metaphorically for life and salvation, the presence of God, truth, goodness. I just want to pause and say this. We as a culture are at an interesting place. Um, we are being tempted and have many opportunities to celebrate and be entertained by the darkness. It's all around us, um, especially when it gets to the month of October for some reason, right? And October is like the celebration of darkness in our country. If you're not aware of that, just go to any store. They've already got the Halloween gear out. If you're not aware of that, check out all the streaming things on Netflix and Amazon and everything else. What are they? It's a bunch of dark, morbid things. The temptation is even to celebrate <clears throat> heroes that are dark, right? Like the temptation is actually to celebrate that which is causing destruction, but to call them a hero, right? To call them someone that is helpful. But you see, <clears throat> there is no gathering. There is a separation of the light and darkness from the very beginning. Before Adam and Eve, in the very beginning, before any animals walked this earth, before any trees, any fish, God said, let there be light, and there's a separation. There's an intentionality, I believe, with the order. So let's be careful as a people <laughs> that we are not entertaining the darkness. You know, in James 1.17, says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Man, every good and perfect gift is from the Father of heavenly lights. It says in John 8, 12, about Jesus. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's good. If you follow me, you'll have the light of life. I was reading a commentary, and this is a quote I came across. It said, through the word of God, light came into existence. And through the revelation of Jesus, the word brought light to humanity. You see, God spoke light in existence. And when Christ came, he gave light to mankind. You see, Light actually was a very crucial symbol in the Jewish worldview. Remember, this is the audience at the time they're talking to. Just as the Greek culture prized knowledge, the Roman culture valued glory, our modern American culture celebrates freedom, Hebrew culture's ideal standard was light. In the Greek, phos is that word um, for light. You are the radiance a meaning of it, or the divine illumination to reveal and impart life through Christ. So this idea of light is you're the divine illumination to reveal 
so show Jesus is, and to impart life through Christ. Like that is what it means to be light. So when he says you're the light of the world, it's reveal me and then disseminate me, impart me. Everywhere you go, everywhere the light touches, there's hope restored. Things can grow. Stuff can spring up out of the ground. Do you see how God's even designed nature? The absence of light is darkness. The absence of light, <clears throat> things cannot grow. They cannot flourish. It's interesting, right? We, um, we all used to be, at least when I was growing up, you didn't have the phones we had today, right? When you were a teenager, you were allowed to have a disposable camera. Now, if you're old enough, you know what I'm talking about, right? Kodak, like 24 pictures, and once you take it, it's over. Then, like, usually a buddy would play a prank on you and just take all the pictures and ruin them. You know, it's like, ah, oh, yeah. And then you take that camera, and then you take it to the lab, you drop it off at the Walgreens or CVS or whatever, and they do it, and a couple of days later, you go get them, and you're like, man, these pictures are bunk, because you don't even know what was taken. Right? You literally don't even know. You're like, I thought that was good, but it's too late. Right? I mean, that's disposable cameras, and you don't know those anymore. But man, so when you think about where we've come from, right, now we're all into photography. Like, all of us are like, you know, photography hobbyists, Okay? But I want to explain something to you, okay? Um, what's interesting is the word photography, right, comes from the Greek word, phos, the same thing, and it comes from another word, which I can't say very well in the Greek, but more or less what, what photography is, is drawing with light, okay? So it's the idea, when they first came up with the term, people started doing photography, they're like, hey, we're trying to draw with light, but we're not actually draw it, it's just going to be something that we're going to capture this image, Okay? So when you think about people taking their family pictures, okay, so for many of you college students, you don't do that. I don't think you're probably seeing a Christmas card, everybody, just with yourself. <laughs> if you do, it might be a little awkward, but that's fine. Families do it, though. So when you become a family, you're like, it's just like expected that I don't care if you do it on your phone or you get a professional, it's expected to do uh, like the family photo shoot thing, okay? And families will go to a lot of trouble to making themselves look real good, right? We're not sending you photos of every day of the year, just this moment that was digitally enhanced, by the way. So we just look incredible, right? I'm waiting for that Christmas card where everybody just, where, like it's the shot, everybody's crying, it looks terrible. Because that was there too. You know, we don't want to show that. We only want to show our good side, right? So when you talk about photography even, Last I checked, people don't send Christmas cards. They're just very dark. You can't see anyone, right? Like when you're posting something on Instagram, you're not simply taking a photo and like, hey, look at this. And people are like, I can't see anything. No, 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 it was cool. Like I know there's not much light there, but it was by nature, we don't even want to show that. We want to show the things that are bright, that have light. No one's following along if you send pictures that are just dark photos and no one can see anything. Right now, let me unpack you a little bit more. It's all getting to a point here, okay? Scientifically, color is an expression of light. Certain materials absorb and reflect specific wavelengths of visible light, which result in objects taking on a certain color to the human eye. Therefore, a blue flower reflects and disperses blue light back at us while absorbing all other wavelengths of light. So what you see in the color, so what you see is the color blue. 
When nearly all light is reflected, though, you see white. When no light's reflected, you see black. You see the darkness. So that's why at night, you're outside, and there's not much of a moon or stars or cloud cover. It looks very dark. Can't see anything. But the next day, it's like, hey, that tree was there the whole time. Right, man, that car is red. But last night, it did not look red. It looked black. It looked dark, right? You see, the purpose of light, I believe, from the very beginning has a lot of purposes. But let me just state one here today, associated with this and associated with Genesis 1. The purpose of light is to reveal what is hidden in the dark. He said, let there be light. Then he put all the creation together. Do you see it all? Do you see the vibrant colors? Do you see the activity? Do you see the light? And the light is meant to direct us on our way. You know, back in this day, people would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying. Because even at nighttime, when he says, you're like a city on the hill, you know what he's saying? He's saying, listen, even at night, there would be towns or cities up on top of a hill or mountainside. And many times in that region, they were, they were surrounded by walls of limestone. Well, limestone being kind of lighter in color in nature, when the moonlight would hit or anything else, you could actually see some of that limestone up on the city, even in the midst of darkness. So even without a lamp burning or a fire burning, you could still maybe even see, which means you could help people find their way that are lost. Do you see the idea of someone being salty? The idea of someone having light is so that you actually help others find their way. It's not a me-centered statement, and I think we've gotten that wrong. It's not about, well, I'm the light and I'm salty. Right? Like, where's my badge? You know? No, no, he's like, the reason for you being salty or emitting light is for others. Do you see a theme here? What you're gonna see over and over and over again in the teaching of Jesus is very countercultural. It was countercultural at the time, it's countercultural today. Here's how the equation goes. It's about him first, it's about them second, and then it's about you. Him, them, and then me. And here, even these statements, Jesus is trying to make it clear for the purpose of being salty, the purpose of being, being filled with light. Now he goes on in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth have passed away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, Jesus neither gives a new law nor modifies the old, but he rather explains the true significance of the moral content of the laws of Moses. So if you remember the Old Testament, right? Moses goes up to Mount Sinai. God gives him 10 commandments. Um, he then, that then starts a trend of many other laws and, and traditions that the people of God, the Israelites are supposed to abide by to honor God. And in those, um, when in this statement, Jesus is saying, I have, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Let's unpack that just a second. Um, the law and the prophets speak of the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, okay? 
So the law would be the Torah, would be the first five books of the Old Testament. So that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That would be known as the law in this reference, as Jesus is saying. But he's saying, and the prophets that encompasses everything else in the Old Testament, the teachings. So what he's saying is, hey, listen, I didn't come to abolish that stuff. And remember, the crowd that day that he's talking to in the Sermon on the Mount is his disciples who he's been walking with. Um, it is a crowd of random people. And in that crowd of random people, there are also the groups of Pharisees and scribes and those that are very devout to the Jewish faith and to the, and to the laws and upholding traditions of Moses. So Jesus is speaking to them because what he's doing is he's turning things upside down here. And he's about to go after a lot of different things in the following chapters we'll see in the following weeks in this series. He's about to go after direct things on purpose because these are things that the Pharisees had taken in their basic form and then twisted and manipulated. It's things that they've taken and they said, well, hey, it just says do not murder. So as long as we don't murder, we're fine. Right, but then Jesus says, well, if you have anger in your heart towards your brother, that's like murder. It's like, whoa. So Jesus is flipping everything up. But a precursor to this is him making these statements about himself. Now, if, you've, if you come across that word iota, I know we don't say that all the time, right? We're not even sure what it means. You could, it could be offensive, maybe said to somebody. <clears throat> but the iota, or the jot in the Hebrew language, is the least of all the letters in the alphabet. Right? So the deeper meaning here is that everything spoken by the Lord, every detail will come to pass. Meaning he didn't misspeak. It's that we're supposed to uphold the word of God, not pick and choose or parcel it out because this one makes sense and this one's confusing and so I'm just gonna obey this one but not this one. Do you understand me? Like, and, and listen, I get it. Like, There's a lot in here. And sometimes we get even a little insecure of like, I'm not really sure how to obey that fully. So instead of trying and maybe failing, I just don't want to try. I think that's a real insecurity that, that many face, a real problem. Like, we want to do it right. But if you don't know how to do it right, you're hesitant to try it all. Right? And I, I would say that that comes from a culture, society that does not encourage failure. Let me just say, in my house, I've got five little kids. They're ages three to 12. There's a lot of failure going on. In case you wondered, right? <clears throat> I'm a pastor and I do have five children and they all need saving, <laughs> period. But I love them, okay? But we are trying to create an environment where failure is encouraged in the sense of try, get up and try again. I am not saying, wow, I want you to be a failure in life. I'm not, it's not an identity statement, you are a failure. It's a action-oriented part of maturing and growth processes, if I don't fail, I won't really learn. Anyone knows this concept in sports? The guys that get better, the teams that get better are the ones who lose. And then they decide, I don't want to lose anymore. I don't like losing. <laughs> I don't like failing. And the ones that make it to the elite levels are the ones that are able to handle that failure and then yet learn from it, grow up, and get stronger. The ones who never make it to the professional level can't handle that. It, 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 it's less of a physical thing. It's more of a mental thing at the next level. Okay, that, that's just the bottom line. So even for a Christian, I would say, to go next level and your obedience and faithfulness to Christ, you have to be able to deal with failure. 
you have to be able to deal with trial and error, meaning when Jesus teaches us things, we've got to be able to go for it. Give it a go, right? It's, it's like I would tell someone, someone came to me and said, hey, man, I really believe that God could heal people. And I read in the Bible, and I, and I tried it once. And I prayed for someone that had a headache. And I prayed for them, and I was believing so much that it was gonna happen, and then they didn't get healed. And I walked away thinking, maybe God doesn't heal people. And I said, how many times do you pray for people with headaches? Well, just that once. That, that's it. I said, did you, did, you, did, did you learn to ride a bike once? Did you ever get on just one time? What if you failed? Did you ever fall? Did you get up again? Well, yeah, of course. What about swimming? The, the first time you, they, they, they threw you in, you just kind of sunk. What about that? Well, it was, try, try, try again. Just because we don't experience something does not mean God's not faithful and true. Amen. But we are tethering our experience with his nature, and that's incorrect theology. Correct theology, God is good. God is a healer. God is a provider. You may not see the provision you want or the measure of it or amount of it right now in life. It does not mean he's not a provider. It just means you're a human that still has weak, broken places and God's still trying to teach you something and it's good to be humble. And amongst other things, I don't even know of because I'm not God. But all I know is that God always has a reason. He always has a point. He doesn't do anything. Just like Jesus says, there's not one iota that won't be fulfilled. Everything he's spoken will come to pass even though it doesn't make sense to us. That's why I always like to say, listen, it's a lot easier to live life if you just understand where you are God is God and I am not. Just keep saying that over and over and eventually it'll sink in. You're just like, oh, well, that's good. There's mysteries I don't know of and that's okay, right? Now, Jesus is saying that he fulfills the law in all aspects by keeping it perfectly, right? So fulfilling the ceremonial law by being the embodiment of everything to which the law's symbols and types pointed, meaning in the Old Testament, they would point to the coming Messiah, to this person to fulfill the law, and Jesus is saying ceremonially, I am fulfilling it, fulfilling the judicial law by personifying God's perfect justice. Jesus is trying to say here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, we're going to get to the last part just a second, and we're going to wrap it up. Hey, guys, I'm legitimate. I am the Son of God. I have kept everything to the letter. I have been perfect in every way, will continue to do so without fault, without sin. And by the way, I am not poo-pooing on the old law. I am actually, I've upheld it in my life to a greater degree than you have. But now in my new kingdom, I'm telling you, that part has been fulfilled. And now I'm gonna give you something new, which is a much higher standard. And by the way, the only person who lived that standard and its completeness is me. And therefore, if you want access to a holy God who has the keys to heaven, the kingdom of God, the relationship, you want access to him, you have to go through me because I'm the only perfect one now. Do not go to the Pharisees. Do not go to your priest. Do not go to your hero. None of them is gonna get you to him. You have to come through me. So I'm letting you know I am above and beyond Moses. I am above and beyond Jonah and the prophets and David as the king. I'm above and beyond Isaiah and the great men of old. I have superseded them because I fulfilled everything they've spoken and I'm gonna show you a better way. Amen. Do you get it? Do you get it? Jesus is trying to lay the groundwork for, I'm about to lay out some things, gonna be very hard to hear. 
But before you hear them, you need to know I have all authority to say them. And you can trust my words. The last verses he speaks of, verse 19 and 20 on this topic. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. And let's go back to 19. Those who relax one of these, least, uh, one of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. I think in our modern day context, you could put it this way. Anybody that tries to water down the gospel or say you can follow Christ and have an easy life or say you can pick and choose these teachings but not these ones or they paint the picture as we'll do what you want and repent later, that would be in this category. Not only are you doing them, but you're teaching them. And man, you just don't want to be in that camp. <laughs> and you certainly don't want to listen to someone in that camp either. They are misleading you. I'm not saying that their intentionality is totally to mislead or false prophets or whatever all that stuff, false teachers. I'm just saying, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, you, you need to make sure that you're on the straight and narrow path. Don't deviate. There's lots of opportunities and temptations that deviate along the way as you're walking towards me. You're gonna be tempted. But I would encourage you to stay true to who I am. You know, Jesus in this verse 20, he goes in the offensive because he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He goes in the offensive because he's claiming on the contrary that the standards of the kingdom are actually far higher than those of traditional Judaism. So the Pharisees and scribes who were then the crowd were thinking, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. He, he's, he's got some weak message. He's thinking it was sinners, tax collectors. Who is this guy? Who does he think he is? And he's trying to be clear with them that his righteousness will exceed. And unless you can exceed that, which they kept everything so tight, everything to the law, every little detail, but it wasn't enough. That they were the most religious, righteous people in the day. And they still fell short. So the point was this. You have to go through Jesus. You see, people were comparing Jesus' maybe revolutionary life and his message with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. And their charge was that Jesus was someone who was abandoning the high standards of the Old Testament law for which the scribes and Pharisees stood so firmly. But we know this accusation was made over and over again relating to different topics. And yet Jesus rejects this charge that he's a lawbreaker who is lowering standards <laughs> by asserting his endorsement of the Old Testament and claiming that his standards are actually higher, not lower, than those of the supposedly pious defenders of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees. And as we will see in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, he will go after each topic item by item so that people are aware that his standards are much higher. I want us to stand as we close this morning because Invite the band up, because how I want to end this morning is, you know, I, 
I want you to hear this message from Jesus, these words, not only related to the fact that he's fulfilled it all, but related to the salty and the light piece. Because I, I, I feel like that we need to be reminded of again. Listen, if you've already given your life to Jesus, um, he's speaking to you. He's saying, you are the light of the world. You're the salty. I, I need you. I need your saltiness. I, that's how I made you. I wired you. That, that's actually when you feel best, like people are always wondering, how do I feel better? You actually feel best when you're obedient to God. That's, that's the greatest feeling. There, there is no drug, there is no nutrient, supplement, food, exercise routine, sleep behavior, situation, job, or anything else that'll make you feel as good as obeying Christ. Do you know why? Because that is what you were designed for. When he gave his life, you actually designed to align yourself with him. So when you're out of alignment, you know what you feel? Darkness. Ask anyone that is in this place of darkness, and the question I would ask them, is your life aligned with Christ? That does not mean that life is easy. Life may be very difficult, but like we heard last week, you can still experience difficulty and yet have life and peace because your heart and your mind and your soul is aligned with God. So you're salty because of Christ. You have the light because of Christ. Yet that salt, that light can fade, can diminish. But that is not the way. That is not the way God has called you. And if you don't know Christ, I just want to give you an opportunity right now. If you're saying, man, I want to know more about this Jesus. <laughs> um, you can have an opportunity to do that. I'm going to invite some of our prayer teams up here, up here, actually, some of our life group leaders to make their way up here and just be available. If you're here this morning and you're saying, hey, I don't, I, I want more of Jesus. I want to know who he is. I invite you to come up here, one of these guys. But beyond that, I would just say this morning that if you're here and you're saying, I need some encouragement to be salty again, <laughs> like, I need to be reminded of the fact that I'm light. Can someone just pray over me and say what is true? Because I think we're all hungering for truth, aren't we? We're hungering for something real. We're hungering to know that we have a purpose right now, today. Not five years from now, not when we get the business plan figured out, not when we get the ring, not when this happens, but right now. Like, I think we are hungering for meaning now. And Jesus is giving you meaning now. He's saying, you are the light to the world. You are my joy. You are the salt of the earth. Now go, there's a mission to be had. There's people, there's neighbors, there's roommates, there's coworkers, there's professors, there's teachers, there's coaches, there's strangers, there's people that are in a dark place and your saltiness and your light is what's gonna give them hope. Our world needs hope and it's found in him, but seen in you. It's found in Jesus, yet it's meant to be seen in you. So this morning, if you're saying, I just need encouragement. These guys love praying that over you. Just, you just wanna get the fire of God in you again. You wanna be salty again. They just wanna pray for you and say, God, stir the furnace up again. Light the fires again to be lit, to not be hidden underneath a bushel, but to be alive, to be bright, to be seen. So let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you. We love you. We honor you. We are asking this morning that you would 
allow our lights to shine bright again. Heat us up, Lord. Lord, we ask for a saltiness to be restored, for us to be engaged again with the teachings of Christ, that our saltiness is in direct correlation with our obedience to you. That the more we're aligned with you, Jesus, the more salty we are, the more light we have to share with those that are hurting and broken in our world. Lord, let it be said of us that we shine bright, but not for our sake, for yours and for theirs. That's our heart's prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on up if you need prayer for anything. Come on.